Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host Jasper at JasperCH on Twitter and joining me this week to discuss labour reselection battles and trigger ballots and all those wonderful things. I am here with Julia and Kieran, writers and editors for the Social Review. Uh, hello, thanks guys for joining us. Hello. Hi. Those are really enthusiastic. Thank you both. So yeah, so as I said, we're going to be talking about uh, reselections of MPs. So uh, MPs being reselected to stand again uh, in their constituency seats by their um, CLPs, constituency Labour parties, uh, being deselected, which means they can't stand again, um, being triggered on a ballot, which starts the deselection process, I believe, although feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Um, votes of no confidence, too, which don't formally mean anything, but can be done by the CLP to show that they dislike uh, the current um, candidate, whether they're an MP or not. And essentially, Julian Kieran have developed uh, an amazing spreadsheet for the Social Review, uh, which compiles all the publicly available data on which Labour MPs are being reselected deselected that kind of thing so um a lot have been reselected uh five have so far been triggered so that is uh roger godsiff margaret hodge diana johnson emma Lewell buck and Virenda sharma uh there are 14 stepping down uh i won't name them all but uh some big names you may have heard of kate hoey for example uh gloria de piero um and then uh, there have been four Labour MPs who have been suspended as well. So that's Chris Williamson, Mike Hill, Stephen Hepburn and Kelvin Hopkins for a um, mixture of different things, such as anti-Semitism, Chris Williams case or um, uh, sexual assault and harassment allegations in terms of the other cases. So, uh, Julia, I wondered if you'd be able to talk a little bit about the story so far with regards to reselection uh, and trigger battles in the Labour Party. The story so far is what most commentators have said, which is most of the selections have gone the incumbent's way. It's still fairly early on for us to make a lot of conclusions. I have partly the theory that there will be more triggers than a lot of people are anticipating. Um, I, I, I think it could go like up to like 50. I think this is mainly because some CLPs, what happens is uh, when you're going to vote to have the full selection process, uh, it's every COP is divided into branches and some branches are very tiny. So in the case of, uh, for instance, Diana Johnson, I think what uh, triggered her, her reselection were about 16 people. And one of the branches were like two people voting for the full selection. That's, that's kind of how the process works. Uh, like it, it, if you have, if you don't have a lot of people in certain branches, it becomes easier to like, trigger um, a selection. This all seems very esoteric, but like basically what I'm saying is that the Parliamentary Labour Party, which is to say DMPs that um, Corbyn rules, are basically, are probably fundamentally going to be more or less the same as Corbyn. And as such, they're probably gonna be slightly to his right you know, we got to see how many triggers are there going to be. But I think that's like fundamentally because the process of, of like saying I don't want this candidate is sort of like very negative and it's very hard. And even if you don't like a person, it's hard for you to like make a strong argument to like take that person out unless you organize very, very well, which usually people don't. If you're reading like all those, uh, if you spend like the past three years, four years since Corbyn was elected, you probably read at some point, there is a tension between the MPs that he rules and that he leads, rules makes him sound like a king, uh, the MPs that he leads and the left-wing revolution that he brought to the Labour Party. Now, there's been a lot of scare stories saying that a lot of like radical far left Trotskyists are gonna get these like famous um well-liked constituency mps similar to the scare stories we heard about militant and the way that they get those people would be like through triggering them which i know sounds terrible sounds like a edgy comedian uh <laughs> comedy triggering basically means that Instead of that uh, MP being immediately uh, being the candidate in the next election, they have to like 
campaign to be uh, that candidate in the next election, and if they lose that campaign, they're replaced by someone else. So the word for that is deselected. And just to clarify for people, an MP can be deselected by the constituency party, but they continue being the MP until the election. Yes, exactly. So, you know, let, let me make up like a hypothetical MP. We'll call him Hillary Benn. Yes, uh, this MP who does not exist. Name this is not a real MP. I just made it up. So Hillary Benn, you know, was, let's say, uh, a problematic figure for Corbyn for years. What happened now that the selection program uh, uh, process is happening is that uh, left activists, uh, which, depending on your point of view, are either the big bads or the great people who are going to change labor forever, the truth is that they're somewhere in between, have the opportunity to remove this made-up, completely not real MP who did not make a speech about anything, whose uh, firing was not pivotal to the 2016 coup. None of this happened. This made-up MP that I just made up <laughs> um, can be replaced by a Corbyn loyalist. The thing is, so far, this has not happened. What What's most remarkable is like, when you look at the the context that the context that were started, the selection battles that were started, one happened. Diane Johnson happened because she didn't organize well, basically because sixteen people uh, managed to trigger that uh, trigger the context when she had about like seventy people voting for her. Because if two people voted no, it could have been that just like one of the people didn't like her. You know, I was just mad at her from like way before any of the Corbin stuff start. Godsefa and Sharma, I believe, did not have anything to do with, with Corbin, or if it was led by Momentum, it took on a lot of people who would other, otherwise be indifferent to to uh Corbinism. Mm. So I think it was like a uh it was just like they were quite bad mm. at at, do, at doing their jobs as local MPs. When you read about this battle, like this is what you see repeated over and over. Uh, Margaret Hodge embarking, which uh, John Lesman said that it had nothing to do with momentum. I don't quite believe it was completely like free of momentum, but like probably uh, was not led by them. I think what happened there is that Margaret Hodge has been an MP for 30 years and she is, to say the least, a contentious person and has always been. Probably some of it led by the, the whole anti-Semitism debacle, but also people from the right of the party who sort of were like, talk, talk, I, you know, the seat is great and I want to get it. You've been an MP for 30 years. Yeah, so I just want to make sure that I'm getting this right. So the Corbyn Project's aims, so the leadership's aim, was to introduce trigger ballots and reselections so that they could uh, put more loyalists into the Parliamentary Labour Party, right? Right. This is the thing that every leadership wants to do. This is not like an nefarious plan with Corbyn. But in practice, that hasn't been happening to the extent yet that uh, the leadership had certainly been hoping for. And certainly very many Corbyn skeptic Labour MPs, so explicitly Corbyn skeptic in some cases like Tom Watson, for example, is really the most high profile case, uh, have been you know, sailed through and have been reselected. So does that indicate, like you say, that, that most CLPs are not necessarily as bothered by this sense of like ideological purity within the PLP as the leadership had thought? Or are there like too many other factors to really pin it down to, oh yeah, they are a homogenous block who will want their MPs to become Corbynites? We should we shouldn't assume that like there has been like one factor in those selections from from what I can mm-hmm. see. Uh, it seems to me to have been like multiple strain of factors in, ver- uh, in several of those. And I think one of the most in- interesting cases is South Shields, where I think Momentum was trying to avoid the, the triggering, was trying to avoid the selection back- battle. And and I think the the local councillor tried to like cause it from, from the right. So yeah, I think the main thing, the main conclusion I've got, Labour members, you know, they value hard work. And I know this sounds like almost like, you know, it sounds ridiculous, like it sounds cliche, but like they value a good local MP. They value somebody who makes the effort 
to talk to them. They value someone who they might not agree with, but that does campaigns that they like, you know, they value all of that. It's not a, you know, it's like, I feel like some of the left-wing people I've seen call this like laborism, but I call it like, like this parochial view of the labor party as very, being very important, like almost above socialism. But to me, I just see that as familiarity. It's, it's hard, like, even if you're not, we're here in the social review, even if you're not, you know, my biggest fan, it would be hard for you to organize with everybody else to kick me out of the social review. You know what I mean? Simply because, like, I put in some work mm. and you, like, you might not be ready for that confrontation. I hate to break it to Julia, but I've got my, I got my deselection trigger. You got back. your um, ducks in, <laughs> in the row. Why is the selection process happening now? as opposed to last year or 2017 or 20, 2005, at any other point in, in history. Why now? What's changed in terms of um, Labour Party rules and infrastructure, but also maybe in terms of the political climate? Why is this happening now? It's happening now because uh, in 2017, they were caught off guard by Theresa May. And mm. the Labour Party has the stupidest role I can fucking think of like even even if you're if you're like if your party doesn't have like the whole your leadership isn't about democratizing the party the labor party has a dumbass rule that says if a, if a early election is called there are no selection process everybody's just immediately reselected and it's just like horrible like a horrible unless somebody like wants to send out it's just a horrible rule so i i wondered if if uh, one or either of you would just be able to clarify the two-thirds rule um, which is the big new rule in in the party infrastructure, which I think has probably led to these changes. Well, it was it was more important until yesterday, but I'll get to that. Um, so MPs now need a two thirds double majority, so two thirds of the branches of, of the constituency and all the affiliate branches in that constituency. So it has to be two thirds in both. But it, that's it's it seems high but it's a lot lower than before and basically it removes the trade unions from the process altogether so how does it do that well the trade unions don't basically get a veto over the process they can't stitch it up in the way they used to okay so so before the rule was that the threshold was higher than two-thirds and trade unions had a veto is that correct but in effect yeah i'm not sure if they had to you know if it was that clear cut what they basically did. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning because, like, for instance, Roger Godsiff, the reason why he was saved from these... Because, like, I cannot emphasize this enough. Uh, people try to diselect him several tra times acro across, like, the, the, deca the decades. I think the first one, like, going back from Blair, they try to, like, uh, diselect him, but the... Uh, the local union, basically you get every branch to vote him down, and one of the unions, one of the affiliates, uh, votes to keep him, so he stayed. With the, the new rule, you can get someone like Godsif, like, way more easier. I think the other case would be Kate Hoey. I think she also was being protected by the local unions. The, the, the sort of thing that's undercut that now is yesterday, um, the, NE, the National Executive Committee, which sets the rules for Labour, ruled that um, they will decide the long list of candidates for each selection that's going to take place. So it's not it's not quite open selection as the left wanted. It's you know NEC approved candidates, but the seat, the constituency party gets the final say on the. So it's sort of a semi stitch up, if you like. Sure. Because the CLP don't actually have the power to choose the candidates they want. They get given a list of candidates. A long list, yeah. But they can choose from that list, but it's not you know, it's not anyone. They have to be approved by the NEC. Yeah, they can choose from the list, but they can't make the list yeah. is, the, is the problem. Okay. We, so, so, so we talked about how the unions now have less power in terms of the deselection process. Why is this the case? Because uh, in terms of how people perceive the current Labour leadership. I think people would say that the unions, or at least um, figures such as Len McCluskey, are very close to Corbyn. So why is why have they why have the leadership enacted a change which um, makes the unions less powerful? Well, it's more it's more likely to result in triggers because the uni the unions will protect MPs who support them. It's one of those things like people always think of the unions as oh they're they're pro Corbyn they're not they're pro 
themselves. If, if another candidate came along that was offering the kind of sweeping changes Corbyn is in terms of, you know, sectoral, uh, sectoral collective bargaining and stuff like that, I'm sure they'd support them as well. I think this gets forgotten a lot, this point that Kyron said. Um, I was reading back when Corbyn, like, first started. Len McCluskey was not backing Corbyn, uh, like, immediately. He initially backed uh, and Andy Burnham. So like, uh, so like it's like he said, the the unions are not there to protect the left or protect the the, the right or anything. They're pro themselves. They're there to like uh, have a government that is like open, more open to their demands. Sure, and that is pro union, union friendly. Yeah, they're not there to like be the Corbyn line. I feel like people mm. people get that confused a lot. So when you look at Len McCluskey. Which like gets like he gets painted as this huge uh, superpower uh, Corbinite who like controls everything. He actually like is not what he wants is to get what's best for his union, you know. And he's right to do it. Like that's his job. Like that's literally his job. Like I don't like him, but I feel like people don't get this about him. Is that like it's not about you know Le McCluskey. His like militant past. He loves Corbin, and he just he's just there to protect Corbin. That's not it. He like Lem Lukowski wants the labor leadership to adopt postures which will benefit his union. Like his his job to do. And this is like a tension that happens within the Corbin um, project, which is like conflicts of interest. Yeah, the unions have their own interests, and those interests often clash with the idea of wider party democ- democratization, which comes from the the Benite uh, left. The unions, like the 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 current uh, configuration of the the labor selection process, was a compromise because what uh, people like John Landsman wanted were uh, open selections, which means like you had a new contest, which is similar to the America model of primaries. You had a new contest for every seat, every time, instead of like deciding if you're gonna have a contest or not. But the unions didn't want that because they saw that as undercutting their power. So they compromised on, on that. So they lost the power of like vetoing completely, but they still got some power, which they wouldn't have got before. I just want to. I just want pull up, pull up something which you mentioned earlier, Julia. Um, you said that you fu- you thought there were going to be up to fifty triggered MPs up for reselection. Um, Kieran, do you think the number's going to reach that high? I don't, I wouldn't like. It's, it is too early to guess because we've only seen what five MPs, and you know, God save us. I mean, it's really more about laziness than anything else. Sad as it is, like he sh- he should have had the withdrawn for homophobia, but you know he's been deselected because he's lazy. Really, Hodge, as Julia said, but had was quite complicated. A Diana Johnson, there were two people at her branch meeting um, for to trigger her, as I uh, I heard. So some of them are quite, you know, and there's only five so far, and there's two hundred odd MPs. So it it is too early to say. I think you could get fifty triggered. But I think the number that will be actually deselected from that would be substantially lower, and I think there wouldn't be many big scalps either. Like if if they're not if they can't deselect someone like Neil Coyle, someone like Lucy Powell, or someone like Alison McGovern, then I'm not sure they're going to get anyone. You know, like I ju- I just don't see it. Here's what I sometimes some get slightly confused about. So. You mentioned MPs could get triggered, but maybe not deselected. Why it like how how does it, how does the system work to produce results where people can get triggered, but then they may not be deselected? Yeah, well, tri- yeah, it's it's all about organisation. Like they could be on one night, they can have people um, enough people there to trigger them. Um, you know, taken by surprise, like I said with um, Diana Johnson. You know, they they can. It's all about getting numbers in rooms. You know, having having your ducks in a row, as Julia said in the pre-podcast chat. Um, so it's it is all about organisation and willing, being willing to put the work in. So MPs can be triggered by surprise, but then they can you know 
um, get their house in order and win the selection race? Uh, the reason why I think it would go up to 50 uh, is because um, I was talking to another social review collaborator. Um, and they mentioned that, like, sometimes, you know, it's like very tiny uh, branches. It's like, it, I know this sounds very, like, weird. But basically, um, every COP, it's like a COP, a uh, constituency of the Labour Party, is a house. But it's divided in several rooms. So it's like you can have 40 people in the kitchen saying, I want to keep this MP. But you get two people um, in the guest bath, uh, bedroom and two people in the in the kitchen saying i uh i want to dislike them though the votes of those four people combined is worth more than the the than the vote of those 40. so it it, it seems kind of like weird but that's sort of how it goes um so i i could see like you getting like that number that high because um basically because some people don't organize as well I am sort of expecting like the area around Liverpool to get like a lot of triggers and probably a couple of deselections. So uh, one final thing I just want to quickly address um, regarding the broader political utility, I suppose, and ideological utility of doing uh, reselections and deselections. So something which I do get concerned about and maybe isn't being borne out by the data yet, but potentially could do. Uh, as the process keeps going um, is that a and we, we've kind of referenced this already in the conversation that the idea that like a an MP who is liked within the constituency itself as in outside of the CLP will, un- will end up getting triggered and then deselected and then that disadvantages the wider constituency which is going to be full of all sorts of other voters of course and perhaps members of other political parties um, who are then going to be very unhappy and say, oh, so we don't have our MP anymore because of the this constituency Labour Party. Um, how is how is that fair kind of thing? I just I, just, I was just wondering if um, if Kieran you'd be able to like explain like is is that a valid point of view? Um, is it is it a system which is actually fair? And am I sort of misreading it? Or you know what 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 what's really what's really what's really going on there? Well, I think that depends on what kind of Labour Party you believe in. Like if you believe it should be run by its members, then it is a it's a fair, albeit flawed system. If you believe that it um, the constituents should be should be above the members, you know, in terms of who decides who, then yeah, it's fair. But then is that really reflected in a voting system? Like do people really vote for their local MPs? I don't think so. So I don't, it's complicated, but I think it's. It's as fair a system you're going to get considering all the internal con- contradictions within the Labour Party. I think the thing, so you, yeah, so you kind of touched on there, but I think the thing which does still make me slightly uncomfortable is like, while I completely recognise that Labour MPs should be representative of the political party they're standing for, so, you know, figures such as Kate Howey, for example, very clearly have little to no ideological resemblance whatsoever with the current Labour Party, have much more in common with um, the far right of the Conservative Party or the Brexit Party, for example. And indeed, she was at a Conservative Party conference the other week at a fringe event. Um, That is clearly a problem. And if you're going to be a political party and you're going to stand for a political party, your representatives and your candidates need to be able to represent the political party. But equally, once you become an MP, and if you're running to become become an MP, is it not true that you're you're not just serving the party anymore? You're also serving all these other people who live in the constituency. You're serving um, people who have no interest in becoming members of political parties, or who are members of other political parties, or or, um, or who are ideologically sympathetic but are not members. Is is it potentially damaging on a kind of like national? on like on on a national level but also on a kind of like constituency level with the other constituents since the other constituents um and their attitudes toward labor that um we could potentially see well-liked mps end up not being the mp anymore based on what a small proportion of the population that constituency wanted i think it is damaging but equally i don't really know what the alternative is like you know you can have the, the leadership or the nec intervene and save a candidate but that's just gonna 
end up with more animosity in the CLP and then what is member democracy really for? Then I don't really see what the alternative is other than sacking off the membership completely and just doing open primaries with uh, like the Tories did for Nick Bowles and Sarah Wollaston. I mean, that is the only feasible alternative I can imagine to having mem uh, um, the system we currently have. And that has its own flaws. So I think I think the only like alternative system would be open primaries. I know a lot of people in the Labour Party don't like it, but like I've sort of like come to the conclusion it's probably the the best system because you have somebody like Jess Phillips who says, you know, you, well you trots might not like what I'm saying, but guess what? Everybody in Yardley fucking loves me. People might get organize and, and kick her out and she could have been right but the thing is also i feel like we should always like keep in mind is that one uh, personal votes are very very small like very small it, like somebody who gets two thousand people to vote for them like on the basis of a personal vote they have a ridiculously big personal vote and yet they won't come nowhere close to the personal votes, to the votes of anyone with the Tory, Lib Dem, or Labour rosette on them. You know, that's, that's like, that's the first thing to keep in mind uh, when having this conversation. So yeah, maybe like 2,000 people would get pissed off if you deselected Jazz Phillips, but, you know, the majority of people would be like, hey, you know what, I'm gonna vote for whoever has Labour or Tory stamped on because that's what i like those risks are very overplayed i think what is a risk though um on those election battles is that they get nasty and they reinforce old perceptions so for instance the selection battle in barkin i feel like has the the risk of getting very like ugly and nasty and reinforce the the perception that people have that labor uh has a problem with which is uh Jewish MPs speaking up. So that that would be damaging because it would be damaging to the Labour brand, not because people love Margaret Hodge or anything. Um, and I think another thing I like to think is like, yeah, the, the selection battles, like, they're often, they're not fair. Uh, so like what happened to Diane Johnson seems to me to have been like straightforward, not, not fair. But also, like, tough, tough shit, you know? Like, it's it's a party, like, people organize to, like, get people that they want in. Like, Stephen Bush has this line, and I, I think about it a lot. You don't have to like Corbyn to admit that he has the right to have a Labour Party that looks like him. You know what I mean? And I think he's right on that. And equally, like... People on the labor right who know how to play the game, get their, their ducks in a row, and pass their fucking selection battle, they're right too. They played the game. I'm sorry. That's how things are done. Yet yeah, no, it's not fair, but it's how things are done within politics. Uh, two points I want to add. Uh, first, what uh, repercussions this could possibly have on a Corbyn government? I would say that, like, usually. The, uh, every government is uh, compromising with the most conservative member of their coalition. So if the most conservative member of your coalition is, for instance, Keir Starmer, who's like a run-of-the-mill, uh, you know, Labour MP, uh, you're going to have a much more radical manifesto. And, or if the, if the most conservative member of your coalition is Caroline Flint, who I think would be like on the right of the Labour Party, then you're gonna have a much more conservative manifesto. But like, as far as like, people always go, oh, these people are gonna sabotage a Labour uh, government, they're gonna ruin Corbyn. When you look at the most rebellious uh, Labour MP during the new Labour government, a guy who literally think that the Prime Minister during that time should go to prison, and that's Corbyn, he agreed with that government 70% of the time. So I don't think a, a, a substantial 
problem. It's a substantial problem for the Labour Party to have Corbyn and uh, to have those MPs still placed. You know, I don't think that the, the losing, uh, the left losing those selection battles, is that much of a problem. the The other thing I, th I feel like I should say is that selection battles aren't they're an uh, absent from from real life prejudice. So if you look at the the results of uh, the selection battles, the the women are overrepresented. Sharma and Hodge, one which is uh, uh, BME and the other who's Jewish, were triggered, and the Labour Party uh, runs the risk of like maybe losing all its female Jewish MPs, but one. So uh, it and it has no mechanism to to uh, fix that. Because um, thanks to like enough pressure uh, during years, if a, a woman gets triggered uh, during a selection battle, she's immediately replaced by another woman. But I don't think that mechanism exists for like issues of race. So in the case of like, even like if we use like a, a defection, in the case of like Chuka Umina, he was not. He. I don't think he will necessarily be replaced by uh, a non-white candidate, and that's really bad because the Labour Party, uh, first of all, counts on non-white votes. So the least it could do is represent them, and um, but also because it's even worse if you cut uh, existing MPs from there. Um, the anti-Semitism issue being like a, a, a much bigger one, I think. But it, I really think that this is like an urgent thing that has to be looked at, uh, which is race uh, diversity should be represented in the Labour Party. And it has a long way to go to that. To what I was saying before about um, the NEC um, getting involved, that's the sort of history of stitch-ups in the processes is not is, is something that has existed throughout the in, entirety of Labour history. Like Hugh Dalton, uh, who was at least first chancellor, used to fix selections to ensure his favourite candidates were cho chosen. You know, more recently, Tristram Hunt is a really famous one. Of he was imposed on his constituency by the NEC. Kate Hoey was chosen over Martha Rossmore uh, for Vauxhall. Um, you know, there is a long history of this happening and Corbyn's not even with the new rule change isn't immune from these uh, accusations, especially with the um, NEC being able to choose a long list. Um, but these selections have never actually proven to be, I think Julia said this before, a way of reshaping the party in the leader's image. It's more, you know, selections for prospective uh or pr prospective parliamentary candidates or people stepping down that's more important. Um, selections in general, I think they encourage more conspiratorial factional thinking, like especially um, recently an example would this be the Ilford South selection and one of the candidates was accused of um, sexual harassment, I think it was, and people were saying, oh, this, you know, with no evidence whatsoever, oh, this can't be true, it must be a stitch-up, you know, and it's, it's, it's quite unseemly, this kind of stuff. As to how it would affect a Corbyn government, um, some uh, an interesting sort of case study would be the MPs for a deal who didn't vote, you know, apart from Caroline Funk, they all didn't vote for a deal and are now very pro any deal, um, no matter the cost of Northern Ireland. You know, people like Gareth Snell, Ruth Smith, you know, their gamble paid off, they've been reselected, you know, and we might see more bravery from them in regards to voting for a future deal, but I don't know, maybe only to a point because ultimately what has driven their, um, their, their not voting for the withdrawal agreement was cowardice, so why break the habit of a lifetime? Hello, 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 hello. I'm joined now by Morgan Jones, uh, writer and editor for The Social Review. Uh, Morgan, hello. Thank you for coming on. Hello. Thank you for having me. What's your uh, What's your Twitter handle? It is at Morgan Jones, but it's some variation of zeros and underscores that I'm not particularly, <laughs> I'm not okay with at the moment. 
that um, the listeners can figure out for themselves. The listeners can figure out for themselves. I used to be <laughs> at RIP Golden Fryer, which was uh, my tribute to a beloved kebab shop on the Myland Road that sadly closed. But then I had Golden to... Fryer. I never. When when did that close? That must have been before me. I don't remember that one. Um, it was on the corner by the co-op, and it sadly died a death. And I think like late two thousand and sixteen. I see. I'm still I'm still quite obsessed about it. Hmm. My favorite kebab, uh, it's the pizza one, green pepper. Oh, no, it's either, I don't know, Dixie Chicken is a good one Dixie, as well. Dixie, yes, yes, Dixie the one Chicken. That's genuinely disgusting, but also mm. you're like, this This could be pigeons, but it's very important. So <laughs> I, I have some Dixie Chicken at this moment, at this moment after the club. My, but, but w- the thing with green pepper was that they did these like four pound pizzas, or it was like oh. buy one, get one free. I don't remember, but it was some ridiculously cheap deal. And you get these massive pizzas. Were they disgusting? Yes. But as you said, it was very important to eat when you were feeling lower coming back from the club. Um, yeah. Isn't Dixie's the one with like the massive art of the like women in uh, like yes revealing clothes yeah, yeah yes um, it's not great <laughs> i would say it's perhaps second only to the curry place on brick lane that has a like a fantasy themed mural of princess diana jesus christ um, <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly how you imagine it to be we're talking about deeply cursed that is deeply cursed uh morgan uh you've written a couple of pieces for the social review um kind of all like lifestyle themed i guess um you've written a piece about nighttime walks um which i enjoyed as someone else who also is fond of nighttime walks uh and a piece about diaries uh and it's diaries we'll be discussing today uh so you wrote a piece uh titled massively observing yourself the labor campaign for diary keeping um much like yourself i'm an avid diary keeper um so i found it really interesting and in the piece itself for those who haven't read it you wrote uh i firmly believe that each and every one of us would be better off keeping some kind of diary. It is good for us in the present and us in the future. It is good for our ideas of ourselves and our ideas of what matters, and it is good for society. Uh, 100% agree with all of that. Um, And for those who haven't read the piece, um, which hopefully isn't very many of you, uh, in what ways has your life changed by keeping a diary, do you think? All of of them positive. Uh, No, so I've kept a diary for about six years now. And like I kind of, as most people did when I was a kid, I had like a few abortive attempts at like, ooh, went to school. And then I started <laughs> really seriously when I was about 17. And I think I was in an environment where a lot of my friends were quite earnest diary keepers. In fact, a lot of my friends were just incredibly earnest. And so mm. it, was really the, it was really the thing to do to keep diaries um, when I was at school. Mm. Um, and so it was just kind of a habit I continued over. Yeah, I wouldn't, I think I have a, I'm not sure if this is just added, like, the change into adulthood, but I do think of when I started keeping a diary when I was 17, like, I can, I think I'm very aware of everything that's happened in my life since then. I can be quite clear about all the different things I did and, like, why I thought them and what I was doing and mm. how, how I felt about them. Whereas when I try and think of myself as a free diary keeping being, it becomes a bit difficult and nebulous. And I'm not sure that is also partly just an age thing. It is harder to imagine yourself as like, when you're a young teenager, you're not, you're not quite a real person yet. And you don't quite know how to be in the world. And therefore you're not quite sure. Yeah, yeah. It's harder to remember these things as well. Um, but I do think that kind of having a material record of it is part of it. And I can remember all of the different, all the different strands of it. I particularly enjoy reading kind of, I will write if I, if I ever meet anyone or do, Kind of find myself in new environments i'm very big on writing down first impressions mm. um so it's very interesting then to go back and see this is what i thought about these people when i first met them before i before i had any of my what i know now it's also just good for keeping up keeping up writing skills i think yes 100 if, like, if you like to write it's good to write every day even if your own life isn't a particularly fascinating subject the mechanical act of doing it improves your ability as a writer which sounds mm. very secondary school english teacher and a bit boke but like but it's true it's true did you write down your first impressions when you joined the social review group chat um <laughs> i'm not sure i did to be honest okay um, probably good uh <laughs> I, remember, I think I remember, there's probably an entry somewhere that's like got a message from will about this uh, new thing they're trying to do bit busy. All... <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you met you talked about memory uh and how you can remember things better by keeping a diary um i do i do have to agree with you there so 
2017, that was the first time I kept a diary. I diaried, documented every single day of 2017. Um, and to begin with, yeah, well, yeah, it was, it was all online. So, well, it was on like a word document. So, um, it was relatively easy to do because, you know, I'm always online. Uh, you will never log off. I will, I I will never log off. (laughs) Um, I wrote every day. Um, and even now I can very clearly remember the vast majority of things which happened in 2017 um and i can as it was like quite an important year you know i like finished my a levels i went to uni for the first time i dropped out of uni um you know had many important um friendships and relationships professional and personal um i can remember it all very clearly and i can very clearly document my feelings but for 2018 and also 2019 i haven't documented every day um and a lot of those periods I now don't remember as much like a lot of big stuff has still happened so I can be like oh yeah that you know that month I may not have written it all down but I can very much remember um feeling that way but it's it's certainly not as clear as it was in 2017 so I think you are right that diary keeping does improve your memory and your sense of order in your life yeah I had a I was at a pub quiz a couple of weeks ago and the question was um David Bowie and Alan Rickman both died in the same month what month was it and mm. I was like, I can not only tell you what month it was, I can tell you that David Bowie died on the Monday and Alan Rickman died on the Thursday, because I can remember exactly what I was doing and I can find the diary <laughs> for it as well, which obviously just marked me out as being quite weird and anal, but also <laughs> didn't didn't like win us any extra points in the pub quiz, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Oh, that's that. they should have given you extra points for that. I know. Um, Scandalous. Yeah, it was January, wasn't it? Um, yeah, January, <laughs> January yes. 2016. Kind of building off the discussion about memory and um, order in your life. Um, diaries are kind of an extension of the idea that humanity, we are storytelling creatures. You know, the Scottish philosopher Alastair MacIntyre uh, wrote that man is, in his actions and practice, essentially a storytelling animal. Thank you, Alastair. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I was wondering um, how often, if, if ever, you do this. Uh, do you find yourself consciously exaggerating events um, or omitting events from your diaries in order to kind of construct a sense of narrative? Or are you very strict with yourself on, on that account? Um, I was, when we were talking about this before, as we were getting ready, I, I remembered a friend of mine telling me that she had purposefully not written about, uh, I think it was a breakup she'd had, and she was mm. like, and the, but there was a there was a line addressing this in the diary which said, "I will not discuss this matter here, as this diary is for glory only." Oh. <laughs> um, which I do think I don't know. I got asked the other day. I, I have one friend particularly who's, who frequently needles me, being like, "Oh, do you write your diaries to write some kind of tell-all memoir about us all later?" <laughs> and I don't. I don't think I ever like deliberately leave anything out. Mm. Um, but I think sometimes you can be. You can just be in the mood to not like self-reflection is great and all that but sometimes you just want to let sleeping dogs lie or you don't have the energy to write about something or something maybe it's just too painful to consider sure. in the form of diary until quite a long time later um mm. but then i do often find myself coming back to things if i haven't written about them at the time i'll say you know didn't write about this then but now a couple of months have gone by i can think about it or whatever the whatever the case may be but mm. i do find my I was kind of casting around for general advice on diary keeping before recording this. Yeah, my my diary keeping friend Hannah was saying that her only advice for advice for diary keepers is to just be in no way precious and write everything down and maybe treat it almost more like a commonplace book than a a kind of dear diary today I did, um, because that'll give a more full impression. But I yeah, suppose it depends yeah. what it depends if you are going for this kind of Jackson Pollock's paint splatter of life, or whether you're going <laughs> for a sort of more curated thing that could be read as a, I don't know, what's a diary, what's the equivalent of an epistolary novel in diary form? Is it just a novel in diary form? I am anyway. going to go with your definition. I've got no idea. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of, kind of building off of that, um, have you, do you at any point when you're writing your diaries, do you think, ah, oh, the historians are going to love this or like, um, you know, oh, this is going to be fun for people to read. Is that is that something that ever 
facts into your thinking because you wrote in the piece about how like you don't think it is an act of narcissism to be to write your diaries um to keep diaries uh, and i would agree with you um and by and large i think i write i i i write my diaries for personal use but then sometimes when i am yeah 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 sometimes when i am documenting kind of like a big thing um so like uh the film that i made last year and this year which i think is a which i would consider like a big achievement in my life and which i hope um you know i will continue to to think so and i hope others will think so if you know as and when other people see it um you know i was i was very cautious about documenting that quite carefully um ditto for stuff related to the social review because you think well you know if it ever gets to the point where someone else can be reading this then i want there to be an, an accurate record is that something which facts into your thinking as well or not really um a bit so i mean to show my hands uh i have the two degrees in history and have spent quite a lot of time in archives and mm. have done a lot of kind of fiddling through mass observation and people's diaries from um i did a, a long essay on uh diaries of women in alternative education in the 1940s and hmm. so Interesting. i do kind of think and as someone who's very involved in politics i do think a bit about being kind of explicit about writing uh, writing about political events like i remember yeah. writing in great detail when it was at the time of the the eu referendum um because i was there ah, working brexit Oh, <laughs> you're never more than five feet away from a Brexit. Um, but I was then, I was then, I was working on the campaign, and so I was up all night at the count, and just like I remember feeling quite involved and feeling that this would be, it was interesting mm. to have have this record. And I don't, I don't, I don't hold to everything I wrote, if you know what I mean. Like I don't feel the same way about it all, but it's interesting. And yeah, now like continually being involved in politics and also having done kind of academic degrees in political history i am vaguely aware of the fact that this could be useful for so like i think if i if i were to find the diaries of my alternate self who was living in the 1980s i'd find them useful as a historian mm. um but also you're only ever a, a very very small piece of this like it is i don't know mass observation is mass for a reason it's not just the diaries of a few people unless you become really famous in which uh, case unless i inevitably <laughs> become massively famous successful yeah. and all of that in which case there'll be yeah. a primary source in which case there'll be a primary source and yeah, <laughs> i can yeah. to drag whoever i want through the mud retrospectively <laughs> <laughs> like the alistair campbell style of publishing diaries yeah, exactly. like document everything publish everything it's interesting that you mentioned the remain campaign and also related to alistair campbell um <laughs> and you you saying how you don't feel now the way you did then what, what did you mean by that do you mean you were more pro-european then or you were more <laughs> distraught then or what, what does that mean um i was a lot more pro-european i think okay i, mean, I am i am i don't have british citizenship i felt i was involved in the labor in campaign it took up you know the entirety of my life for you know six weeks of the short campaign sure and um, I was also, I was uh, subletting from a, a very good friend of mine who at the time is still, uh, was a was a Leave voter, is a, a Labour Party member and a Leave voter, and it caused some tensions between mm, 100%. us. 100%. Uh, to the point that I... <laughs> no, Moved out. Say, yeah, no, no, I, um, yeah, we, there were some clashes over it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it was quite, like, emotionally charged, and I think... I was, when I look back on my diaries now, I can recognise that I was being histrionic, histrionic and kind of caught up in this national mood. And mm. I now think that kind of the cultural, I like formation of cultural identity around Remain is one of the great demons of British political life. But I was definitely victim to it at the time. Mm. Um, but it's interesting to see how that changed, I think, over mm. time. Um, well, yeah, so I think, I think that taps into a, a broader necessity for diary keeping and how it relates to politics because you know so much has been written and said about um the role which nostalgia has played in political developments and discourse over the past couple of years in the uk and um plenty of other countries too um and nostalgia is more often than not blinding and people will misremember how they felt 
and what they thought at certain times throughout their life, um, whether it's them personally or just objective facts about what was happening. Um, so like, I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen it, the kind of Facebook pages, which would be like, I remember this back in the fifties. There's one which is particularly prominent and it was going on on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. And like, it looks fake, but it's 100% real because it's been shared onto my feed too many times. It's memory lane UK. Um, and it will, I'll have to send it to you after this. It's so funny. Um, um, it, it will like be like, Oh, remember when, you know, you would have to wash the pavement outside your house or like, remember when you could play outside all night and then come home for tea. Remember when you like get grazed and you went have to go to the hospital. And like a lot of the things they were saying were like, I uh, will be like factually untrue about the time period that they're talking about but that doesn't actually matter because all these people believe in it it's kind of like the number of older people who sort of think that they grew up through world war ii or thought that thought that they fought in world war ii and not necessarily like oh yeah i literally thought that i was a soldier but like kind of assuming that they were directly implicated in that political and cultural climate when they just weren't um yeah I remember going to see um, Dominic Sandbrook speaking a while ago at at Queen Mary, mm. and him saying that he thought the great kind of shift in like punk marked the great kind of shift in mindset between people who had this kind of um, sacred cow attitude to World War Two, which kind of then got a bit rubbished in punk. But like this was the the cultural mindset and world was so like vehemently post-war that there was no that you almost had to think that you were part of it. Mm, mm. Um, 100%. But diary keeping can rectify that because you can look back and be like, oh, actually, I did think this back then. And sometimes you do just forget how you thought and felt about certain political developments at times. And and it stops you from whitewashing your own history, um, which is why I think it's so related to politics. Yeah. On a more on a more digital front, um, so many people do keep diaries um, these days without realizing it because um, they're on social media. Mm-hmm. You know your Twitter feed, your Instagram feed, your Facebook feed, uh, your YouTube channel, maybe um, your TikTok. Uh, they're all forms of digital public diary keeping uh, or mm-hmm. private diary keeping if you've got a private Instagram. Uh, but the data isn't necessarily yours. It's be it'll be owned by uh the corporations themselves um or uh even if it's not owned by them then the information and the data is at least at their mercy because at some point facebook's gonna suffer a glitch or google's gonna suffer a glitch um or the company's gonna go bust and people's data is going to be lost um and there was a really good new statesman article about this um which both of us swear we have read and I can't find it anywhere. Um, but it was talking about what web no archives. What is it to have a dream up, dream up, uh, sure, new statesman articles? <laughs> <laughs> it, came to me, it came to me in a dream. <laughs> fitting, fitting in an episode about diary keeping as well and memory and trying to make your memories better. And we both can't remember how to get to this article. Uh, maybe if, maybe if I'd written it down. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, at, at some point, people's data is going to be lost. There is the event is going to happen and it already does happen you know uh geo cities um used to be a major uh web server website provider in the early noughties um but geo cities is no longer active a lot of um old digital information about forums and people's websites no longer exist and that kind of like history is all gone um so looking at this uh for what the government can do and kind of building off what you were writing your piece about how a labor government should invest in mass observation programs which used to happen in the 20th century do you think that the future labor future socialist government um can do anything in order to protect people's data and digital diaries i mean as much as i am the weirdly the foremost proponent of the labor campaign for diary keeping (laughs) probably not the priority when it comes to digital digital policy <laughs> um, probably maybe yeah i mean yeah no one's diary ever accidentally hacked an election but well so i, t- I mean it ties in it ties in with that as well because you're you know the digital economy thrives on uh what information and what data you can broadcast about yourself in order to service you ads and service mm. you political marketing um so i think it all does tie in together um 
like that what you're writing publicly about your life in your digital diary is then being taken by Cambridge Analytica or just you know Facebook um to then service you ads and as you say swing elections but yeah you you mentioned um in the pre-chat podcast as we tend to describe it about um a friend of yours who's scanned their diaries and yeah, so tweets my, them by robot my friend hannah whose twitter handle i know better than my own simpler it's uh at booster hooch um <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a great twitter handle great mm. dj name um it has a has a bot that she's made i think a friend made it for her mm. um which she scanned all of her all of her pages from her diaries from 20, 2013 till now mm. um and the algorithm tweets them out at entirely at random um mm. which is a very weird and interesting project so as someone who has known her throughout that entire period it, there is a little bit of the mark francois like i i look at the index i see if i mentioned <laughs> I <can play laughs> if i'm not um, but it is a genuinely very interesting kind of weird mix of because you expect Twitter to be like people's like funny shit takes or people's yeah mostly people being a bit self righteous or people having like yes. thirty to fifty feral hogs jokes. Um, whereas people breaking this, down. Yeah, like there's Twitter is not f- I don't know it's not for the diary keeping medium generally. Mm. Um, much less so than sites like Tumblr would have been, for example, though. That's, mm. Yeah. But, uh, whereas this, whereas her strange bot kind of, you know, spans those, I think it's quite, it's, it's quite a weird one. So it's at, um, underscore pink book. Um, if anyone is interested, That's fast. I think I'm she gonna, has, I think she has about 40, poli- 40 followers, but, uh, it's, it's worth, worth exploring. Maybe um, I'll go up after this episode. To the mighty way of the social review podcast swings behind it. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded overly snide. <laughs> <laughs> we we do have a mighty swing. Maybe yeah. we don't really. We don't really. <laughs> <laughs> so the, awesome, we talk awesome. about the mass, mass Oh yeah, the mass observation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you um, want to illuminate that a bit? Yeah. So that was a project that was going in the. I would very much like to see it seriously, seriously revitalized with quite a lot of government funding. Um, mm. But so it was really going in the kind of the 1930s to the 1950s, 60s. Yeah. Probably not entirely. I probably don't have my dates quite right there. Um, when they had serious kind of teams of surveyors sent out to just record people's, you know, get people to keep diaries, record people's random opinions, uh, do surveys. So a kind of mix of a kind of um, social history census thing, um, which mm. was quite, yeah, throughout the war and into the, into the post-war years was quite big. Um, mm. Now it's it's kind of changed form into something called the Mass Observation Project, which has been going since 1981, um, which is a quite, a, I think, I don't mean to denigrate them, I'm sure it's actually very, I'm sure it's bigger than I think it is, but it's quite a small outfit run out of the University of Sussex. Um, mm. And they generally do a diary day a year, which is when they try and get people to send their diary saying, you know, what were you doing on the 30th of September 2019? Mm. Um, but they also have a series of prompts which they send out so they have apparently have a a prompt a season so i was looking i was looking through these earlier which are they're quite interesting so you know spring 2018 charity in the welfare state disability the royal wedding uh, um, <laughs> uh so yeah and then it may interest you to know that uh summer 2019 was personal identity sex education and milk usage Milk um, usage. Which I'm very keen to I'm very keen to hear all about, to be honest. I, I am so I mean, keen. <laughs> I would presume people are using less milk, which is why they are asking people about it. Mm. Or, you know, Mike Gapes sees control of the mass observation project and a bloodless coup that we haven't heard about. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand the Mike Gapes milk meme. Where did that come from? <laughs> I actually am not sure I understand it either, but I'm I'm quite here. <laughs> it, it it entertains me, so I don't this, criticize it. This this is how culture works these days. This is how culture works, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Milky Mike Gapes. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, awesome. who, who knows? Maybe there'll maybe there'll be mass observation uh, comments about that. Or you know, it'd be interesting to hear what people in the summer of nineteen ninety nine thought about public libraries, body piercing, and tattooing. Current events. So you know, I don't know. It's an interesting project. Uh, 
Hello and thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. As per usual, the music you heard was Sweeter Vermouth, composed by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Just want to say a quick uh, cheesy thank you uh, to everyone who listens to the podcast. Uh, September was our biggest month in terms of uh, listenership, which is uh, absolutely amazing. Thank you so much and hopefully we can keep growing exponentially from there. Uh, And this is the 20th episode of the podcast, 20 whole episodes how uh, mental and incredible is that uh so thank you if you're a regular listener um if you do enjoy the podcast please do uh tweet me at jasper underscore ch on twitter uh or uh, the social review at sock review on twitter or whatever please do let us know your thoughts um but otherwise thank you very much for listening to another episode and you will hear yet another one next week goodbye